I don't know how I live. I don't know how I live. Baby, what in this world to Baby, what in this world to do? Well, don't wanna hurt your feelings. I need to get mad at you. Hey, what's up, WCBN? This is Max. It's about almost 4.30, but quickly before I let you go, I'm going to run down the last things we heard. That was Dr. Isaiah Ross with Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, Johnny Copeland with That's All Right, Mama, uh, Warner Williams with Jay Summerroar with Digging My Potatoes. That was our little blues set. Before that was Mingus with Devil Blues, Chico Hamilton with El Toro, the Mark uh, DeClive Lowe remix. Flogging Molly with What's Left of the Flag was before that, and then the Pogues came before that with a nice little segue with their fairy tale of New York. Uh, then we heard a little bit from the Rocky Horror Picture Show with I Can Make You a Man. Uh, we heard The Index with Eight Miles High off a really obscure LP. Uh, Cream with White Room. Before that was The Zombies with Time of the Season. Uh, Deuce Coops uh, did a little bit of uh, surf music. Little song with called Night Prowler. The Misfits with Astro Zombies and I accidentally cut off some Built to Spill. But before the Misfits was Built to Spill with Carry the Zero, and I should have been, you know, uh, telling you guys what you're hearing. But oh well. Um, right said Fred with I'm Too Sexy. Uh, Sesame Street, which was really the Bee Gees with Trash. The Jackson Five. Uh, with body language off of their album Moving Violation. Michael Jackson with Another Part of Me uh, off his album Bad. And then by request, we had George Harrison with Wawa. Well, that's it. Uh, until next week, au revoir. Stay tuned for the Living Writer Show. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is the poet Alice Fulton, author of most recently a selected book of poems called Cascade Experiment. She's also the author of Felt, Sensual Math, Powers of Congress, Palladium, Dance Script with Electric Ballerina, and others. The recipient of numerous fellowships and awards, including the MacArthur Award, which um, for those of you who are not familiar with the MacArthur Award, it is sometimes nicknamed the Genius Award. It's, a, it's a, an amazing award for um, very creative folks, and um, Alice Fulton is certainly a very creative, up in the top list of my creative favorites. Um, she received the 2002 Rebecca Johnson Bobbitt National Prize for Poetry for which is the book published immediately before Cascade Experiment. Her poetry has appeared in five editions of Best American Poetry, and she's also published short stories and essays. Formerly a professor here at the University of Michigan, she's currently a professor of English at Cornell University in New York. And in addition to all that, her poems have been set to music and performed in many venues, including the Guggenheim Museum in New York. Welcome. It's really a pleasure Thank to you, have you. Thank you, Ashley. It's, it's great to be here. And it's sort of a circling back. Um, you were reading yesterday uh, for the 
undergraduate underclassmen awards for the mm. Hopwood yes. as part of the one of the kickoff events for the 75th anniversary for the Avery Hopwood mm. Awards. Mm. Um, Michigan is the University of Michigan is blessed with these wonderful awards for creative writing. I think they sort of throw more monetary awards <laughs> at, at apprentice poets mm. and, and fiction writers than anywhere I can think of. I think that's true. It's amazing to me all that encouragement and and the wonderful writing that comes out of this place as a result of that. Really great. And we've had some of your students on the air. We, we were talking just before the show started about Sean, the poet Sean Norton, who yes. appeared on the show back in the fall with his mm. book, Bad With Bases. Mm. Um, and we actually spoke about a conversation you had with him about his <laughs> thesis workshop. So we've heard all, a little bit about you as a teacher in another context. Oh, nice. <laughs> now, yeah. now we'll focus mostly today on um, the poems published in the selected book, Cascade Experiment, which is just out, and also felt the book immediately prior. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you'd start us off with um, one of the poems from Cascade Experiment. Sure. Um, Well, Ashley has asked me to read this particular poem, and it's a wonderful choice. It's a poem from Cascade Experiment, originally in my book Central Map, and it mentions Michigan, so I I think it's very appropriate. It's a little heart-to-heart with the horizon, and I didn't prepare much of an introduction. Um, Yeah, I'll just read it. A little heart-to-heart with the horizon. Go figure. It's a knitting performance every day, keeping body and clouds together, the sky grounded, simulcast, ecumenical as everywhere, stay and hedge against the bed of bouffant space. You're the binding commitment so worlds won't split. And I'm talking about the horizon. That's what I usually say in the intro. (laughs) You're the binding commitment, so worlds won't split. Last week we had Thanksgiving. The post-cold warriors held a summit full of east meets west, high hopes. Why not hold a horizon? Something on the level, equitable instead. They said the U.S. Army held rehearsals on monastic sand, In the desert, lieutenants, zipped in camouflage, thought back to where horizons were an unmade bed, a nap on the world's edge. Privates, nights when they were sanded by flower-fitted sheets, ground out in flower-fitted skin. Her. Oh, him. This Michigan is short on mountains, long on derricks, needle-nosing heaven, making evil electromagnetic fields. Talks on the fringes of the summit could eclipse the summit itself, the anchor admitted. Go figure. Your reticence, your serene lowness. Because of you, I have something in common with something. Your beauty is due unto me, and who am I to put you in the active voice? I rest my case in your repose, a balance beam, point-blank closure that won't Bows are too ceremonious. Close. You graduate in lilac noise. You take off and you last. You draw all conclusions and erasure, auroral. You come back. But I am here to vanish after messing up the emptiness. I am here to stand for thanks, how it is given, hope, how it is raised. I am here to figure long division, love, how it is made. Wonderful. Thank you very much.
Now, um, I wanted you to read that poem in part because it did have Michigan in it, and in part because it, ha- it, it ends with how love is made, and we're, we'll sort of get there in a minute. But this book, in some ways, to me, uh, symbolizes a circling back because you <coughs> excuse me, had to go back to earlier work, and in fact, work that was written s- in some cases in 1979. Yes. In order to put it together. Right. <coughs> excuse me, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that process. Oh, yeah. I mean, going back, um, I think I was a different poet at different stages along the way, and, and going back was... Um, Hard in a way, but but interesting. And I think any time I put this together, it would have been a different book. If I had put the selected poems together five years ago, I would have made a different selection. Because now I, even among my own work, I like certain things better than I at certain times in my life than I do others. Going back, I could find that there were traces of of the poetry that came later in the early poetry, my my current poetry. Uh, an interest I had in language was there at the beginning. And um, I remember one of the questions when I was in graduate school that I brought up with my own teacher was, "Do I should I write this kind of simple, plain poem that people have been, other people have been pushing me toward?" I'd gone to a writers' conference, and they had told me to make it easier. You know, make don't don't make your poems have these unusual words or the textures and sort of the density. And I said to him, "What do you think? Do you think I should make it easier?" because I don't want to make it nasty for people. And he said to me, in a little note I, I found when I was moving, uh, he had written me a note and said, well, it's only my opinion, but I think you should go for it, for the complete complexity, use all the notes in the language, make it the most you can. Why dummy down? And why make it dumb? Amen to that. Yeah. Now, was this, um, Ammons was one of your teachers. That was Ammons. <laughs> <laughs> that was him. A.R. Ammons gave me that advice when I asked him. Lovely advice. <coughs> Want, want some water here? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm going to need it. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, Keep I, it. <laughs> funny, I've never had that issue before. <laughs> Cough right through your nerve. Now, when you've been described as, in the one of the reviews from um, Cascade Experiment, as not a safe poet um, in, in the sense that you're unafraid to try unafraid to try just about anything um, that you are moved to, to try. And when I mentioned this interview that we did with Sean Norton earlier in, I guess it was earlier in the academic year, but prior to um, to this year, 2006, he, he had asked you a question about style and where does style come from, and you had said it comes from character. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. um, in this conversation that you had with A.R. Ammons about whether or not you should dummy down or whether or not you should... Um, play to an audience, let's say. Mm. Um, clearly, you have not made the decision to do that. You have <laughs> followed your own heart and spirit and intellectual threads. How has that been a challenge or, um, other than that initial sort of crisis of confidence when you asked him the question, how have you negotiated that throughout your career thus far? Well, thank you, Ashley. That's really a compliment to say that that I took risks and, and went for it in that way. Um, yeah, I, I think... After a while, if you're devoting your life to something like poetry or art, any of the arts, you want to do with it everything you can. And if I came up with an idea, an example would be a a poem in my third book where I I had the notion of having handwritten comments in the margins by imagined readers. And 
I knew that was going to be a controversial poem because of what they were saying in the margins, the handwritten comments, and because of what the typewritten text said, and just the production of it, just getting that handwritten stuff before computers, and this was 1990, getting it produced would be hard. But uh, I was so tempted by it. It was such a temptation to create that poem that I, I just did it for fun. you know. And, and again, I, I think Archie Ammons, A.R. Ammons, sort of, inspired me because his poetry has very wild inclusive things in it all these neuroses and words that you don't see in poetry he gets the full range of the English language so looking at what he had done um, I thought I'd just try it and so what if it doesn't get published you know write it have fun with it and if it doesn't get published something else will Uh, and I also have a faith that if it's good eventually it will see the light of day so I just went with that and um, wrote it it came from the notion of library books that are inscribed, because earlier you said you didn't want to write in books. And I said, well, that could be fun, <laughs> because from my own perspective, whenever I get a library book and somebody's written in it, the writing in the margin upstages the written the, the text, the typeset part, because I want to see this kind of gossipy thing that one person thought, with their hidden secrets, like, I'm so bored, I can't wait to get to the end of this <laughs> book, or critical fatigue has set in. So in my poem, I had all these critics in the margin that were dismantling this poem and saying critical things from different critical perspectives, and maybe one of them liked it. And uh, it was like a workshop, too, on the edges of the poem, and I had been teaching and you know, thinking about critics and workshopping, and, and I love handwriting. I think it's such a personal thing. It's the text when it's typeset looks doesn't look idiosyncratic. And when we handwrite, all of our personality comes through. And I actually had my friends here in Michigan do the handwriting in the margins of the poem. So that was a risky oh, one yeah, at the definitely. time. At the time, you know, and it, that was definitely something I think nobody had done before. No, and you mentioned um, the different critics. I mean, thankfully you didn't listen to them, or you're not listening to them to, to the to the point of keeping. Um, you from doing the experimental of it, that or to trying try what it is that you're mm. you're uh, moved to do. I'm wondering though how you figure out. You said if it's good, then it will get published, um, which is a great leap of faith. Um, one because it's sort of dif- difficult to publish um, widely. You know, a lot of people have a really hard time ever getting any sort of any foot in the door with that. So it makes folks afraid. Mm. But how now? You don't have that issue <laughs> at all. Um, how is it that you decide what's good, particularly since you're experimenting with different things? So there's this evolution. What's Where's the core at the center that says yeah. that one goes in the bin and uh-huh. this one goes in the send-out pile? Right. I, I think it's my inner reader. <laughs> it's it's the person who's reading poetry, not by me, but, but by others. Um, I try to write the kind of poem I like to read. I think that's the only honest way, is to write the book that you want to read. And um, I I have models, you know, poets I've loved, and I try to learn from them. Whether it's A.R. Ammons or Emily Dickinson, I'm always looking for for things. And prose, too. I'll think that's a beautiful sentence if I'm reading a novel and write it down in my notebook. So for me, it's thinking, what do I enjoy? Where's pleasure located for me? And I think by reading a lot, we become educated that way. And it's only by reading a lot that we learn what we like to read, because we might like something and haven't read it yet. And it might be something that could teach us so much. So for me, it's always voraciously trying to absorb and read and not turn away from it and not let sort of competitive feelings like, 
Oh, you did that so well. I'm scared. Another poet who does things I don't do uh, to to become afraid of what they can do, but to try to learn from it and be, be open to it. And then go toward that. It's intuitive. I mean, it's intuitive. If you write something and you you think deeply, wow, was I really interested? And let it sit and then come back as a reader to it. Um, and then it's aesthetic. It's your aesthetic. Some people really want to write a very plain, transparent poem that is the opposite of what I said when I began the talking with you, that I was thinking about language and textures and wanting to use different levels of diction. Some people don't want to do that, and I respect that because it's coming from somewhere very deep in their character. Their whole lived life is telling them what they want to write on the page. That's what it should be. And, and far be it from me to mess with it. If I have students who want to write a plain poem, I always try to help them get there to write the best plain style poem, the best transparent surface that they can. Um, so the the whole issue is writing what you love and learning to recognize what you love. And when I, I read in a, some a conversation that you've had in, at some other time when you were speaking about you got your MFA at Cornell, um, which is where you now teach. So there's this sort of circling back there and, and then circling back here to uh, Michigan and circling back in Cascade Experiments to some of your other stuff. Um, is on my mind today. And um, <laughs> I wondered, as you're thinking about working with your own students, which you've been doing for, for many years now, um, one of the things that, that Archie Ammon said to you was, um, well, you can hang out here f- if you want and sort of figure out how to be a poet, but I don't know what I can teach you. And then in another place, I've sort of read that um, one of the things he really did teach was how to play, that you were in your early days of writing, very concerned with control and making it be just so, and and he helped you kind of leap off the page in ways. Um, what's how will you talk a little bit about that, and then not only in your own work, but how that's translating into how you're teaching those who are now your students? Yeah. Oh, what a great question. I, I had forgotten that part about play. Um, you began with what what the first thing, time I met A. R. Emmons. Um, he, he said to me, uh, you can come and hang out, but we have, I have nothing to teach you. Uh, and then the third part of that was, your poems are there already. And at the time, the only way I could hear that was I'd send him my little chapbook. And I thought, oh, he's trying to blow me off. Even my poems are there already, this little chapbook. I, I heard it as, you mean my poems are... And he did tell me, you know, they're good, they're good. You know, I love your poems. And I'm very nice, very nice. But at the time, all I could hear was... He's telling me my poems are as good as they're ever going to be, and I know they're not. Oh, dear. I know they're not. And I think he just doesn't want me bothering him. I think he thinks if he tells me I'm that good, I'll leave him alone, and I'll just go off and write these poems, and, you know, he'll have more space. So I kind of had that feeling of maybe I, I can't believe it, but then I understood it later to be something very deep. He meant, I think, in a way, that they were all rolled up inside of me. Your poems are there already, in that sense. They come from character. They come from everything you've ever lived. They are in you, and you can all you can do is allow time and reading to allow you to write them. You know, With more reading, with more time, with hanging out here, listening to all of us poets talk, you will they'll be like a scroll that just unrolls from you. And so in that sense, I, your poems are there already. They're, they were in me. The question about play, um, it's true. I'm a perfectionist. And 
I wanted everything to be perfect, and in my poems there's still that sense of perfecting. And Ammons was not like that. He was, he would write in wild first drafts, and everything would get into it. And he has a book called Garbage, and um, he has this book, The Snow Poems, where he just has a breakdown on the page, and everything goes into it. Watching how wonderful that could be, and how naked and how vulnerable it was, made me want to be more naked, more vulnerable, more open on the page, and to allow more in, and to remember to always have fun with it. To, to always have that sense of the wicked. He had a wicked sense of humor. And to let that come into it, too. That sense of, uh, we don't have to be so serious about this. It can also be funny. It can be uh, that jouissance or play. Um, so he, he helped me loosen up. And that was a great gift, because I was far too uptight, I think, about it initially. And there was another part to your question, which I... I think I just forgot. Circling back. Circling back. Well, it had to do yeah, with, going back. Um, in some recent conversations you've had about work that you're working on now, you're much more interested in process and control and accident, which is a which is a very different place. For, I mean, more interested in process and accident than control. So that that's a big movement in sort of the thinking about your stuff. And we're going to take a short break, and when we circle back from the break, we'll, um, in, we'll work on that one. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Any way do. Well, Mama, she done told me. Papa done told me too. Son, that guy you fool. You're listening to WCBN, The Living Writers Show. My guest today is Alice Fulton, and my name is Ashley David. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. And I'd particularly like to thank Chaz Barrett's mother. Chaz is our engineer, and she has tuned in all the way from uh, Pennsylvania. She's, she's streaming live, so we'd particularly like to welcome you to the WCBN audience today. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a real treat. Um, that was Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a voice. That's it all right, does. Mama. And it yeah. was early Elvis. We Yesterday when you were reading, you were talking about there's young, sexy Elvis, and mm-hmm. then there's old, fat, drugged-out Elvis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Elvis when he was really sexy. Oh, yeah, that was a great was, voice. He totally had a wonderful voice. Um, yeah. And uh, I wanted to play that now because you had talked about him yesterday in your ta- in your talk and in your reading at the Hopwood Awards. But I also wanted to um, play him for this break because um, there is something really fun about that. And we were talking about just before the break a little bit about um, your evolution as a poet from um, a young poet just starting out wanting to. Um, be a real perfectionist and, and mm-hmm. control everything and, and your teacher A.R. Ammons really worked with you to let a lot of things into poems and your poems are characterized by a polyvocal quality um, characters, diction, there's all kinds of stuff going on that is is not happening in a lot of contemporary poetry in the U.S. Um, and increasingly you're experimenting in other ways as well with um, where you think about or how you think about poetics um, the title of this most recent book is Cascade Experiments, and uh, that 
does not come from the world of poetry. Where did you get the the title? Uh, that's from the world of science, and and science is another one of my interests. A cascade experiment is like a domino effect, where you or the butterfly effect, famous example. One little thing triggers a cascade of an avalanche of of cause and effect, and it just goes on down. And I thought it would be a good name for the book because it's as if the first early poems were that trigger, that that domino, that flicker that that led to all of the other poems that came later and they each grew out of each one poem led to the next in just that way that organic sort of cascading effect and and it was uncontrolled in that way too i didn't know where they were going at any point i just um couldn't foresee what was going to happen next it was the one before it that triggered it but i didn't know where i was going um i think for me t- that question of control is one well i'm a controlled i want i'm the natural perfectionist who wants everything to be perfect and controlled so it was very important for me to loosen up and to allow things to become wilder and to allow that to happen while other people who are that way naturally the wilder people are like that naturally spontaneous they need to go the other way i think to become more of the perfectionist and move toward that level of polishing and honing and so it's sort of our whatever we're lacking that i think we need to to go toward and uh elvis i think is an example of something that interests me a lot in poetry when i think of him imagining him moving the early elvis i think what attracts me as much as his good his beautiful face but um it's his weirdness <laughs> the weirdness of some of the moves that where did he get them from i mean some of the moves that elvis came up with you just look at it and you think where did he get it and it's so right it's so interesting i mean he's eye candy you can't take your eyes off him because you don't know what he's going to do next he's got some weird move up his sleeve and one of the things about poetry that i love is my my book of essays about poetry is called the good strangeness of poetry the quality of strangeness the uncanny the weird is part of what i think in all art moves me very deeply and makes me go back to it something that's a little twisted and odd and off kilter but yet you feel its quality of rightness and um it's new it's fresh it has that quality of innovation which is there in the strange and the young elvis let's face it nobody had looked like that before i don't think not in quite that way not in he quite borrowed. that way he, he borrowed he borrowed a lot i mean at least yeah. at least no white boy playing music um rock yeah. and roll oh to, definitely from black music sock, sock hops um look like nobody looked like that um well one of the things we're this is not why I did it, but it did occur to me that we're sort of moving in the direction of Valentine's Day, and um, it only occurred to me after the after reading your books and thinking that love comes up a lot. And one of the things that, as a teacher of um, of beginning creative writing students, one of the things that the, my colleagues and I always say is, "Well, we get so many horrible love poems. We, do, you know, let's, please don't write a love poem. Let's write about something else, something particular." And one of the really wonderful and fun things for me about reading your work has been encountering all these love poems uh, or poems that sort of deal with love and the the first one you read when we opened the show um, leaves us in that space and I wonder if you'd read one of your early poems um, that's in Cascade Experiment called Scumbling oh yeah sure yeah that's good because it's a short one and it, and it sort of because I think that love is infinitely strange and weird and <laughs> it's interesting to me that you weave that into yeah it's so complicated and so important and I think a love poem if I can say this is the hardest 
I think it's very hard to write a love poem without being cliched and sappy and, and sentimental. And, and that's why students have a hard time with it, because it's so heartfelt, and they're feeling such deep things, but it's hard to make it fresh, because we feel ageless things, and then we have to find fresh ways of saying it. Uh, so, But this poem, Scumbling, um, the word scumbling comes from painting, and my husband's a, a painter, Scumbling is when artists uh, work the paint on the canvas to give a very soft look to it. An example would be Monet's water, water lily mm-hmm. paintings that are very soft and gray and blurry. So that effect is called scumbling. And I, I love the word because it sounds like um, almost scatological. It sounds almost like a, a four-letter word. It, it sounds as if it's sexy and rough and... Um, I liked it, so I, I just went with that and wrote this poem. And it was one of my quicker poems. I wrote it at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, where I was surrounded by artists, my husband too, and um, that's, that's where it came from. Uh, I'll read it. Scumbling. Absolved. Face to the wall. Alive only in fact. It was always evening in my head. An evening of thoughts, cool as sheets. His skin made its silk sound, no two glissandos alike. A fine fear streaked through, let somebody else sponge up those tremors. My reserve circled, imperial as the inside of a pearl. All night, I pretended night was an unruly day. I pretended my voice, I pretended my hair. I pretended, my friend. But there it was, I. I couldn't get rid of that. What could I do but let it learn to tremble? So I watched feelings hover over, like the undersides of water lilies, long serpentines topped by nervous, almost sunny undulations. I had to learn Largo. I had to trust that two bodies, scumbling, could soften one another. I had to let myself be gone through, do it in the arbitrary light, tipping and flirting with seldom-seen surfaces. Thank you. Now, you used a couple of terms from music in there, in addition to referring to painting, and your work has been set to music. Um, You've worked with composers here in Michigan and also elsewhere, no? Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely. And there's much of what's been written about your work refers to the rhythm and the music that is sort of inherently there. And um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how you, whether you think about that, as you're doing it, or if that's sort of part of what you hear, and then it, you know, how how conscious is that effort mm-hmm. um, for the music, or is it sort of a byproduct of the the other things that you focus on more directly? If that mm. if that makes sense as yeah, a question. Yeah, yeah. Well, it changes uh, at different times in your life as a poet. Um, I've thought about the music of it in different ways, or it's entered my work in different ways. Um, partly it's a poetry so inherently musical. I think of it as, as a literary form that tries to make music without music, that the music is in the language. And one of the great things about poetry, of course, is the meter. And not that it has to be regular, but that we think of where the beat falls. We think of the backbeat, and we think of the downbeat. It's all scansion. 
and uh, metrics. And I'm I'm not a formalist. I don't I don't really um, I believe poets have to know all that stuff. You have to know about metrics and feet and all the devices and the names for them because that's a great technical language that we have at our disposal. But then you forget about it, and then you can jazz around, and then you improvise, and it's in you, and you don't have to make it conscious. So I I. Um, have written formal poems. I've written sonnets. I've written poems where one where um, in Powers of Congress, my third book, where the every line ended in a different vowel sound, o e, you know. So there'd be lines ending o o and e and e, and thinking about that. So that was very conscious. But most of the time, I'm listening to it and just thinking, how does that sound? And is there anything interesting there? Uh, Is there anything interesting in the sound of the language with repetition, say, or with the pauses, which are caesuras, where the pauses are falling, with punctuation? Is there an interesting silence? Is there some silence that's being filled by the words around it without me saying anything? Because that's one of the great powers of poetry, the power of silence. What happens when when we're not using words in the stanza breaks? at the end of the line, in the line break. What happens when we get to the end of the line, the unit of measure, and we pause as readers? Is there some click or some double meaning? Or are we pulled forcefully forward in that enjambment to hurry on? You know, all of those things that poetry gives us, that prose doesn't give us, the whole technical language, the the line, I love all that, the stanza, and that's all part of the music. And the more you write it, you know, the less you have to think about all that because it's in you, and you're doing it naturally, intuitively, and you're working it in ways you're hoping it's never been worked before. And looking at the great poets like Dickinson who worked the language as it had never been done before, her dashes and her spaces and what she left out, the syntax that she left out that the dash takes the place of. Um, you, just see what other poets did. And then over the course of a career, hoping that it's becoming fresh and new and that language will gift you with something it's never gifted anyone with before and it'll become through you and come onto the page. Wonderful. We're going to take a short break. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, 88.3. My name is Ashley David. This is The Living Writer Show, and my guest today is the poet Alice Fulton. We'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Alice Fulton. And um, we've been talking about her work, and in particular, the most recent book, which assembles poems from five of your books, is it? Five of your books that span the period 1979 to 2002. Right. right. Just about, I think. Yeah, I can barely remember my phone numbers, and the numbers (laughs) are challenging for me, but but a large large period of time. And um, we were talking just before the break about um, the ways in which uh, 
there are certain qualities of the genre, if you will. There's the music that it's it's music without the poetry is music without the the actual music or yeah, um, yeah. when we think of music that, that is anyway it can be lots of things painting without the painting um, there's, there's a lot that's available to the form or, or the genre of poetry um, that has been a big concern of yours all throughout your career um, but it's not the only concern and it is for some pe- for some poets they're only worrying about what poetry can be as a sort of um, genre or action or language, you also are very concerned with what poetry can contain um, in terms of um, the themes you choose to write about, the specifics, the voices, you mix diction, you go high to low um, in order to capture the voices and the um, experiences and and, uh, thought that you would like to capture. Um, I wonder if you would speak a little bit about how you negotiate those two things and refuse your sort of refusal to be lumped into any school you know you're not going to go over here and be a poet poet of witness or or a language poet Um, you're going to write your poetry what's coming from your character yeah I I, in a way um, I feel I'm a school of one or a party of one Um, I almost wish there had been a school that, <laughs> that would that would suit what I've, I've been doing. It wasn't um, consciously that I, I said I'm not a language poet or I'm not um, maybe I did say I'm not a, a formalist because I didn't want to just write in traditional form but um, I didn't really think of it that way it, it's more eccentric I think what I do I prize eccentricity uh, in poetry and in art and I'm not saying uh, that people in schools don't have their own eccentricity, but for me, I never was with a group of poets who wrote the way I did. Maybe if I had been with a group at the right time, we all would have formed a school. It, maybe it, it can happen organically, and it can, it can happen naturally, and I think it's it's fine when poets do that. But I didn't kind of have that good luck. I, I was, uh, as some poets are, writing alone. I was writing alone in my room. My company was my books, my library, and a few um, workshops that I was in as a young poet. But um, once I was no longer a young poet, I wasn't in workshops. I was really alone. So I had no choice but to make it myself and make of it what I would. I wasn't... um, You can't just become a language poet by saying, I'm a language poet. uh, It's um, something that happens or it doesn't, depending on where you are. So um, I didn't have a choice about that. I forget the rest of your question. I'm yeah, sorry. That, that'll do. Was that it? Was there more? Um, you it, had good it, things in that long question that I probably neglected. You did better things with my long question than the question sort of set you up to do. Um, it, mostly I was just trying to get at how you thought about um, your decisions to um, focus on all the different. There are so many options in writing a poem, mm-hmm. and some people choose to kind of focus in on a narrow thing. And you really yeah, do go yeah. for this eccentricity. So your mm-hmm. content and the themes, um, they're they're themes of war and mm-hmm. protest and love and um, science and poetics itself mm-hmm. in your poems. In um, a way, I think I am a poet of witness. You know, of all those categories, the ones you mentioned, and there are many more available to contemporary poets, but I think poetry of witness uh, just means not being afraid to look at things that are hard to look at, what I call inconvenient knowledge. And I've, I've talked about my poetry as being the poetry of inconvenient knowledge in that um, I try in more, more recent work to look at things that maybe 
I would have disavowed or not wanted to look at, but need to be looked at in this culture. Things that we deny, things that as Americans we're comfortable, we're maybe too smug, we don't want to see it, war, suffering, uh, privilege. I've, I've tried to look at that, the environmental problems, animals. I, I love to think about what we do to animals. Um, women, you know, inequity, suffering. My, I think in Felt, my fifth book, the big topic was cruelty and suffering and how to, how do I make it bearable for us to read it and give pleasure at the same time and have a sense of humor uh, while still thinking about those things. So in a sense, poetry of witness was, was where I got to, but there's no school. There's nobody that I'm lumped with in that way. And I think it's unfortunate that poets have to almost be in a school to be visible. There aren't many ways to there aren't aren't many ways to become visible as a poet, and by uh, glomming together in schools, poets give critics a way to describe them, or give even each other a way to talk. Because if there's no name for something, we don't know how to talk about it. But if you can say, "Oh yes, that's a formalist poet," or "Oh yes, that's a language poet," uh, or a confessionalist, you know, going back generations. Suddenly we've got a, a notion, we've got a clue. and to, So it's almost a critical convenience, but the sad part is it leaves out so much. It leaves out 99% of the poetry being written. Today, poets who are not falling into categories, who are truly between category, and there's no way to say, oh yes, that's a, that's a language poet. The, even language poetry now is very... Uh, fragmented mm-hmm. into different schools, different groups. So I think it's it's too convenient to, to just demand of people that they fit in those easy categories, and we should just talk about what's on the page. That strikes me as um, as a, almost a characteristic of this moment in, in the U.S., as, as U.S. culture. We, we're very fond of branding things. Um, I want those sneakers that are that kind of sneaker or um, it's easy for me to know what to buy if I have been told that it's this family of things and um, I wonder if that's a that phenomenon you just described in poetry as needing to belong to a school to be recognized or to be categorized, visible. if mm. that to be visible if that's a bleed over from our kind of general culture if that's mm. have you experienced that's a similar great. phenomenon elsewhere because you've traveled to China um as a with part of a writing of writing delegation and and um I'm not aware of other travels but do you think that that phenomenon is 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 American or well it's a great connection that you just made because I I'd, I'd not made that connection but it's as if you're suggesting that it's commodified it's a form of commodification that we take poetry and put it in these boxes and try to sell it it's like another way to sell it better is to say yes I belong to that school and then everybody can understand right away. But the danger there is they also can think they understand when there's a lot more going on than the label than the label would let you have, would let you believe. But I, I think that's probably true. It is our tendency to want to label it and, and have almost a designer label and a handle on it in that quick and easy way rather than rather than existing in unknowing, as Keats said, of negative capability, uh, the individual's ability to exist in unknowing without irritable reaching after fact and reason was negative capability. And um, that, that sort of space that we can get into with poetry where we don't get it the first time through is where we should be. Uh, you, but it should also call you back to want to read it again. 
I didn't get it the first time, but I'm I'm interested, and I'd like to go back, and maybe with time I can be with it, and I can just luxuriate in in some of the words and and the mystery of it. Mystery is an underrated quality. Real mystery. Real mystery. Yeah. Deep mystery. In poetry, where, yeah, we didn't get it the first time, and that's the good thing about it. Because if I got it the first time, I wouldn't want to read it again. And I've got it. It would be like, um, you know, you read the newspaper once, and then you don't go back and say, I have to read that again. It was so good. But poetry has that quality of the ineffable, of mystery, that calls you back to read it again. And it's seductive. It's the great seduction of of what we don't get the first time, but that seduces us to want to experience it again. Music does that, too. We put music on again and again because we didn't get all of it. Even Elvis, we don't get it all the first time. We're Popular music, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I could just sit here talking to you forever, but the sports report is coming on <laughs> at 5.15, and so we're going to have to wrap it up, I'm afraid. Um, but thank goodness we don't get it the first time through, and we can keep coming back. Um, yes. I'm I'm going to enjoy um, reading and rereading some of the poems that you read today on the show and, and that are in the rest of the book. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ashley. These were great questions. Oh, Thanks. You're so smart. Thank you. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My guest today has been the poet Alice Fulton, and we've been talking predominantly about the poems that are contained in her most recent book, Cascade Experiment, which is a collection of selected poems from five of her books, and also about her fifth book um, called Felt. And you're headed back to Cornell, to New York? Yes, leaving tomorrow. The well, tomorrow. it's been a pleasure having